Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast. And this is going to be a multi-part uh, look at CT of Domeliortis, aneurysms, dissection, and repair. We're going to go through some of the key topics, and uh, um, we'll go. And actually, I gave this talk in Florida, so we'll look at some of the objectives, understand the protocols used for the evaluation of aortic aneurysms and the post-op aorta, understand the potential complications of stent repairs. Recognize the CT appearance of complications following stent and graft repair. Understand the role of radiology in the management of patients, both pre and post endovascular stenting. And to understand the role of 3D imaging in the evaluation of the aorta and its complications. So those are five really good ideas. So let's get started. First of all, what's an abdominal aortic aneurysm? It's classically defined as a diameter of over 3 centimeters dilated region with a diameter of 50% above the normal region, so 1.5 if normal aorta is 2 centimeters, something 3 centimeters or better is considered an aneurysm. When you look at the causes of aneurysms, hypertension, smoking of the two biggies, connective tissue disease, familial, uh, again things like Marfan's, Lois Dietz, and of course infection, mycotic aneurysms. When you look at those three groups of causes, obviously hypertension and smoking is really where things are and especially smoking is the one that is preventable. The inferenal abdominal aorta is the most common site of aneurysm formation. Aneurysms are more three to four times more common in men than women. The incident in men older than 60 years of age is 4% to 8% while in women it's under 2%. And as I mentioned the risk factors for aneurysms include increasing age, hypertension, COPD, history of smoking, male sex, and a family history of aortic aneurysms. The prevalence of aneurysms amongst those who had a first-degree relative with an aneurysm is as high as 30%. And so one of the reasons there is this thought about screening patients, either with CT but probably with ultrasound, is this high percent of familial, uh, and also the fact that if you have patients who have risk factors like smokers, maybe at some point in their 50s you should screen them. Now, of course, genetic causes, Ehlers-Danlos, Marfan's, Lois Dietz, typically by that age you typically know you have that syndrome, and of course you should be monitoring those patients for aneurysms, whether it's in the chest, neck, or in the uh, thorax. So again, we now know a patient has an aneurysm, but not everybody with aneurysms goes for surgery. What's when do you do surgery? Well, there's some rules. Fusiform aneurysms over 5.5 centimeters warrant repair. There's a one-year incidence of rupture at 9.4% for aneurysms in the 5.5 to 5.9 centimeter range, 10% 6 to 6.9 cm, and 32% when the aneurysm is over 7 centimeters. So you can see the larger the aneurysm, the more likely you'll have a complication. We also talk about growth. If it's growing over a centimeter a year, that's the threshold for repair. Symptomatic aneurysm should be repaired regardless of the size. So again, the first two are simply following a patient who's asymptomatic. Number three is symptomatic aneurysms. And again, any saccular aneurysm, some people would suggest those are the ones that get the most problems. Calero wrote this article, endovascular aneurysm repair has become the standard of care based on its lower morbidity and mortality compared to open surgery. Uh, the endovascular repair continues to be limited by anatomic factors, including neck angulation, shorter wide neck, 
severe calcifications, access difficulties, presence of thrombus, but for most patients, it's going to be doable. And endovascular repair is one of the real classic uh, things that medicine has improved over the last decade or so. Now, in looking at the aorta, we have protocols. And in that protocol, we like to inject about 5 cc's a second of about 100 to 120 cc's, depending on the patient's size. And whether we're scanning abdomen and uh, chest or abdomen alone or abdomen and pelvis or abdomen and runoff. We use Omni 350 or Visi 320. Scan delay typically is arterial of about 30 seconds. Typically, we'll do routine aneurysm evaluation, rule out aneurysm. We'll do a single phase at about 30, 35 seconds with an antecubital injection. We'll use thin sections and thick sections, 0.75 by 0.5, are classic, 64 slice or better. It's a good compromise between slice thickness and interscan spacing. And then in terms of how we trigger the scan, you can do a preset delay, or you could do a triggering point. Older patients, probably triggering is better because those patients at times have decreased cardiac output. And you can see, depending where you're scanning, you could trigger at the arch or at the bifurcation or by the knee. And obviously, if you're only scanning the lower extremities, you would have done the uh, aortic bifurcation. If you're doing a patient for the chest, abdomen, pelvis, and maybe, maybe even runoff, then the trigger to me is best in the patient's aorta. Now, when you think about um, tracking, vessel tracking um, is the one we talk about. And again, it's important to know how your system works and to use it correctly. The faster you scan, the less um, triggering point you want because the scan is going to be over in five seconds. You want to make certain the patient is not, it's not uh, still being injected at 10 seconds. Now, post-processing tools that have been developed for a range of applications prove to be very valuable in this setting. So, for example, things like vessel tracking, bone removal, negative angio display are things that are valuable. So, for example, here, here's a patient. We're following it down as part of the uh, aorta through the uh, uh, femoral and popliteal arteries. And you can see nicely the vessels, and we can look from behind, showing you everything down to the patient's popliteal. You can see on the patient's left side there is a graft in place. And you can see that you can track the graft and the vessel. Picking a point proximal and a point distal works out very nicely. And you can see that the ability to analyze becomes very important. So we can see here that the uh, patient's vessel is widely patent. There's no stenosis. And then I mentioned we also can do this uh, negative display. And a lot of times the surgeons like the negative display it gives them a better feel compared to angiography, and it matches angio. And again, either works well in my, um, personally to me, but somebody's a negative display for small vessels does work a bit better. Now in terms of bone removal, one of the things we can do if you have it available is dual energy acquisitions. Then it's very easy to separate bone from vessel. There's less artifact, there's less problem particularly when there's lots of calcification present, it can prove more valuable. Uh, we talk about the difference in K-edge between calcium and iodine of 4 versus 33, which then allows us to separate the two. And whether you're using a Siemens dual source or a GE single source, it really doesn't matter in that regard. And again, when we do the dual energy, it's 
the same or a lower dose. Often less IV contrast can be used. And you can reduce artifact and potentially reduce processing time because you don't need to spend a lot of time editing vessels. In some areas, like the head and neck region, no matter how much time you spend, you're not going to do a very good job. Um, dual energy makes it work very, very nicely. And there have been some articles, Velos, dual energy bone subtraction is faster and superior to typical threshold-based techniques. But again, the article does make the point that you need to be careful because you can have errors. It is better, but regardless of the technique you use, there can be errors. And here's just a nice example with dual energy. Take away the bone, just beautiful example of the femorals, the superficial femorals, and all of the branches, very nicely shown on those images. Now, when we're doing patients who've had a stent repair, we've changed the protocol a bit. We do non-contrast scans first, then we do the arterial phase, and then we do delayed phase. And again, with um, a stent, you're going to be looking for a leak from the stent or failure, but more commonly a leak. And so you're trying to pick up that high-density leak. So the non-contrast prevents you being confused with some cement or high-density material from repair. And sometimes with delayed phase imaging, you may only see the leak on delayed phase or barely see it arterial. So by arterial and delayed, we're able to see everything. Now I mentioned with post-processing, so again, all of the techniques are something that we have available when we do these studies. So now, what do we need to know about endoleaks? Well, post-NCT findings, the aneurysm decreases in size progressively. It's a success. That's all you need to know. You probably won't see the patient back for that, except for routine follow-up. But then there's complications. The aneurysm, instead of shrinking, can be increasing. Endoleaks. The positioning of the stent, migration, kinking can happen. Branch vessel compromise, particularly true in the renal arteries. Infection, limb thrombosis, aneurysm formation elsewhere. So there's no good deed that goes unpunished. Here's a good example, baseline, follow-up a year later, 6 centimeters, now it's 4.8. Excellent result, though there is a small endoleak present. Okay, what about this case? Well, in this scenario, we talk about complications, we talk about immediate, 1 to 30 days, short-term, 30 days to 12 months, and long-term, over 12 months. So again, think about short-term as that first 30 days. We then talk about the type of endoleaks. We have five. Type 1, flow from an adequate graft apposition, proximal distal seal zones. Still happens, but less commonly. Type 2 is the most common and is due to retrograde flow from the aortic or iliac branches. Type 3, flow from an adequate graft to graft apposition at component junctions or from tears in the endograft material. And that still does happen, though less frequently. But I think the point is you need to be aware of it and do something about it. Type 4 flows through the pores of the fabric. And 5, refractory occult endoleak. You see a leak, but you don't know where it's coming from and why. When we talk about failures besides leaks, we talk about migration of grafts, infolding, tears, disconnection of limbs, or stent fractures. Now, in terms of the frequency of complications, the good news is the stents are now custom designed, manufactured by big companies. And so the problem 
In the old days of stent failure has decreased significantly. Uh, this article, the most obvious innovation accounting for improvements in the transition from use of physician-made devices to use of radiology-made devices. So when you have the radiologist make the devices, that's not really where you want to be. Now in this article by Barrel, over an eight-year period, nearly 1,000 patients underwent uh, EVAR, and 42 of them required secondary interventions. So you could see it's about 4.2, 4.3%. So it is not inconsequential. The mean time from initial operation until second operation was 34 months. Failure included type 1 endoleaks in 38, type 3 in 2, and enlarging aneurysm without leak in 2 as well. So you can see that it really, um, there's some things that are very predictable, other things are not. And the vascular repair is the treatment of choice for high-risk patients. A small but significant number of clinical failures were observed during the long-term follow-up. But again, that's not going to be surprising. Now, if you look at the literature, it depends on the graph. Some of the graphs were popular early, and they're no longer in use. Zenith graph was used in 95% of cases. Complication rate, 4.7%. Overall clinical and technical success, 93.4%. So our numbers are good, but you always, of course, can do better. After mean follow-up of 52 months, overall mortality was 25%, aneurysm-related mortality, 2%, rupture occurred in four cases. So again, um, it's important to recognize that complications do occur, even in the best of hands. So it is going to be a challenge at times. This article by Letterly looked at whether elective and the vascular repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms reduces long-term morbidity and mortality. And they found out by looking uh, at this large series of patients from 42 VAs who were 49 years of age or better, that it had similar long-term survival. Uh, the endovascular repair was sustained for several years, but rupture often occurred. Um, the thing about the endovascular repair is that patients liked it more. Uh, Letteral goes on in this New England Journal of Medicine article, and this is five years ago, and the vascular repair continues to improve and is now an acceptable alternative to open repair, even when judged in terms of long-term survival. However, our results also indicate that late rupture remains a concern, and the vascular repair does not yet offer a long-term advantage over open repair. So again, there is lots of controversy in this regard. And if you look at this article, um, it does talk, again, the same issues about doing um, these uh, reads, and looking at uh, and the complications of endovascular repair that again it's suitable for some patients but not suitable for everybody. In this article by Chang, 23,000 patients, 52% received EVAR and again endovascular repair was associated with improved 30-day outcomes as well as significantly improved survival until three years postoperatively. Okay, so short-term, they're great. After three years, mortality was higher for patients who underwent an EVAR. So why that's the case is somewhat uncertain, but you can see there's no perfect study. The survival advantages for ER in a statewide population is maintained for three years. After three years, it has a higher mortality. Okay, so it is somewhat of a challenge, and it's somewhat interesting. And again, I think one of the big things with uh, EVAR is that those patients are the worst patients. They may not survive 
classic surgery, you need to have lots of information, it becomes critical. Again, looking at this endovascular pair from Hicks, despite treating patients with high preoperative risk status, we report a tenfold decrease in operative mortality for EVAR and open AAA repair in a tertiary vascular center compared with national averages. And that may be as the point that there's so much individual skill involved that it's not a perfect answer. So now there's five types of endo leaks. I mentioned that to you. Let's go through the different endo leaks very, very specifically. But before we do, let's take a couple minute break and I'll come right back here. See you in five. <laughs> 